This hearing will come to order. Um, I want to, first of all, welcome our witnesses and you know, thank them for taking the time to appear before us here today, as well as uh, taking the time for your thoughtful testimony. Um, the, the title of this hearing, The Greek Economic Crisis and Lesson Learned, I think pretty well describes uh, what, what I want to talk about. Um, a couple of years ago when we saw the riots in the, the streets of Greece, uh, and then that was pretty revealing in terms of economic models, uh, governmental models that uh, weren't working too well. And one of the first things I did is I asked my staff to do a little research in terms of, you know, what describe the, the, the level of, of debt in America versus uh, Greece. And so we produced a chart which we've updated as of the first quarter. I wanted to keep it uh, all relative. And I was rather shocked at the result. I, I was expecting the, the debt per capita of Greece to be a whole lot worse than the debt per capita here in the U.S., but I found the exact opposite. So as of the first quarter, the end of the first quarter of uh, 2015, uh, every American share of our federal debt is now $56,000, over $56,000. Uh, if you are a citizen of Greece, your share of Greek's federal debt is about 31000 And I think one, one of the questions I have for our, our eminent witnesses is, how can that be? And what does that really pretend for, for America's future as well? So again, I, I, I'm looking forward to this hearing. Uh, we need to be concerned about uh, how the events in Greece may you know, what kind of contagion that might uh, produce for the rest of the Eurozone. And of course, if it's uh, having an effect on Europe's economy, it'll have an effect on the world economy. And so it's really kind of the, the, the basic uh, uh, questions we need to ask in this hearing. And with that, I'll turn it over to uh, Senator Sheen. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to both of our witnesses for being here today. Um, the bailout agreement reached earlier this month by Greece and its European partners, I think we would all agree, is far from perfect. but. Even Greece's prime minister, who was elected in January with a mandate to reject further austerity, agreed that it was preferable to the immediate alternative, which was Greece's probable exit from the euro and the undermining of its financial system and economy. Um, but I think that this latest bailout agreement gives rise to a number of important questions about the long-term viability of the Greek deal and the future of the Eurozone as a political and monetary union with which the U.S. has particularly strong ties. And I have, I, I would like to submit my opening statement for the record, Mr. Chairman, but I, I held a hearing in this subcommittee, I think in 2010, where we discussed this very issue, what were the implications of the financial situation in um, the Eurozone and the implications for Greece and the other countries that at the time were experiencing similar financial difficulties. And the prognosis was from the people who testified that day, actually, that we would be here several years from now with no firm resolution to the crisis. And sadly, I think, we're exactly where that panel predicted that we would be. I, you know, New Hampshire has the highest percentage of Greek Americans in the country, of any state in the country. And so for my constituents and for Greek Americans across the country, they're asking what's the future look like and what are the implications for their relatives and friends who, many of whom are still in Greece and experiencing tremendous difficulties. So I very much look forward to your testimony relative to what's happening in Greece and to what we might do to um, support 
both the Eurozone and Greece as they try and deal with their financial troubles. So again, thank you both very much for being here, and I look forward to your testimony. Thank you, Senator. Our, our first witness will be Dr. Robert Kahn. Dr. Kahn is a Stephen A. Tannenbaum Senior Fellow for International Economics at the Council on Foreign Relations. Previously, Dr. Kahn has held positions at the World Bank, IMF, and the U.S. Treasury. Dr. Kahn. Chairman Johnson, Ranking Member Shaheen, it's an honor to testify today on the Greek financial crisis. Senator Shaheen said the agreement earlier this month between Greece and its official creditors has prevented, for now, a disruptive Greek exit from the European Monetary Union. With adequate financial support, this deal offers a very narrow path for Greece to return to sustainable growth with the euro, but difficult choices face the Greek government and people in the days ahead, and Grexit remains a very real possibility, perhaps even the most likely outcome at this point. Now, so far, the effects of the crisis on the U.S. economy have been modest. Greece is quite small as a share of U.S. trade and finance. U.S. banks have minimal exposure. Since, also, since 2009, Europe has established rescue facilities, strengthened buffers, uh, eased monetary policy, and there's been significant financing and cash flow relief and a, and a private sector haircut. All of this allowed Greece to return to modest growth last year before this year's confrontation with creditors returned Greece to recession. But my bottom line is this is not 2008, this is not 2010. Still, I, I would argue we do need to be on the watch for contagion. Whether inside or outside the Eurozone, Greece's debt is unsustainable, and the recognition of losses for creditors could reveal surprising new sources of financial instability. Contagion through political channels is equally, if not more, worrisome. We will need to watch closely what the crisis means for anti-austerity debates in the periphery, and for the anti-EU movement in the United Kingdom. I will go into more detail on these issues in my prepared remarks, but let me, for my, in my opening remarks, highlight five critical points that I think will confront the committee and its work in coming months. First, the plan that was agreed between Greece and its official creditors is a framework for a deal, not a deal itself. Many details are still to be negotiated. The sides are far apart. There's a lot of things that could go wrong. Greece in the past two weeks has passed significant reforms of tax, judicial, banking system, but there's a long road ahead and the political challenges are daunting. If all goes well, the best case scenario would involve agreement on reforms, European and IMF financing at record levels, a restoration of ECB access, debt relief, a bank restructuring, and the lifting of capital controls. All of this by the end of the year. And as I say that, it's clear this program could, could, could not only fail, there must be very strong domestic ownership of the reforms for there to be any hope of success. And that is something that is still legitimately a concern. Now, given these evident risks, we need to use our leverage to strengthen the plan particularly as regards debt. But policymakers also need to be thinking through a plan B for how best to support Greece in the case of Grexit. That would include humanitarian aid, recognizing that it would be extraordinarily disruptive in the near term and cannot by itself solve Greece's problems and structural challenges, including overregulation, distorted prices, and the rule of law. Second, any program that keeps Greece in the Eurozone is going to be hugely expensive. The agreement envisages a financing gap of 86 billion euros over the next 
three years, of which a little more than half goes to meet, meeting debt service. The rest would allow fiscal financing, the elimination of arrears, and a comprehensive fix of the banking system. But the amounts needed are likely to grow due to inevitable slippages and a rising bill for the banking system closure. This morning we learned that growth this year is now expected to be minus 3.3% and the primary deficit on the range of minus 1% to minus 2%. This underscores the damage and the distance that has been done and the distance that still needs to be traveled. So this is the price of trying to keep Greece in the Eurozone. Even the strongest market-oriented reforms are going to cause some dis dislocation in short-run situations. So it's critically important that Europe pays its share of the financing. Discussions now envisage a, a rescue package, the so-called ESM program, in the range of 30 to 40 billion, less than half the amount needed. I think that package probably has to be at least 50 billion so that the excessive amount does not fall to the IMF or is left unfulfilled. Third, European debt does remain a critical hole in our international architecture. We have a policy for private debt, and there is a Paris Club for developing countries, but the debt overhang in Europe has become a destabilizing force. Now, it may be possible to address Greece's needs in the near term through pushing out debt maturities and lowering interest rates. The policy would be better if it came to terms more transparently with the need for debt reduction. I have called for a Paris Club for Europe, and now is the time to put that idea on the table. I would like my proposal from October 2014 submitted for the record. Fourth, it's important to recognize that any IMF program contains risks. It will need to provide exceptional access, and if we're honest, we have to acknowledge that even with debt relief, there will not be a high probability that the debt will be sustainable. Pragmatism will be needed under the rules, because strict interpretation of the rules would probably force Greece outside the uh, Eurozone. Now, the IMF has been at the center of controversy recently, but I believe that it's acted responsibly in pushing for both adequate financing and debt relief. And I think the U.S. should show leadership as these decisions are made and, broadly speaking, be supportive of the fund's position on this. In addition, the fund's preferred creditor status, which has been challenged by events in Greece, does need to be reaffirmed. Finally, let me step back. I think Greece highlights a trend uh, that you can trace back really to the mid-1990s when there was a Mexico program, or a program for Korea, and through to the rescue programs of Greece and Ukraine today. Across this period, we have seen a rapid growth in financial markets and greater integration from developing countries in global markets. Now, that offers important possibilities for development and growth, but it means that when crises do occur, the financing needs are large and growing relative to the resources the fund has at hand. This is causing increasing conflict between official creditors about who's going to pick up the bill. And when gaps emerge, forces restructurings, which may or may not come at the right time. These tensions are only going to grow in coming years. From this perspective, it is critically important that we work to modernize the IMF, and we cannot achieve this objective unless IMF quota reform is passed. So I see these issues as linked. In sum, we have a shared interest with our European partners in establishing a Greece, whether inside or outside the Eurozone, that is competitive and growing. And we also have a strong interest in a cohesive and economically prosperous Europe. I believe that what happens in coming months with our support could go a long way to determining the future of Europe and of the Eurozone more generally. Uh, thank you for your time, and I'll be glad to answer questions. Thank you, Dr. Kahn. Our next witness is Professor John Taylor. Dr. Taylor is a professor of economics and senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. From 2001 to 2005, he served as Undersecretary of the Treasury for International Affairs where he was responsible for IMF and World Bank oversight.
Dr. Taylor. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Shaheen, for inviting me uh, to this hearing. I, as requested, I'd like to uh, consider lessons for the U.S. from the Greek crisis, uh, compare U.S. and Greek debt situation, and draw some implications for U.S. policy as well as for Greece. Uh, obviously, the Greek economy has been performing terribly. It, real GDP has actually declined 5% per year for the last five years, and it's continuing to decline. But also, for the past 30 years, growth has averaged less than 1% per year in, in Greece, and productivity growth nearly zero for the past 30 years. I think there's uh, three key factors that have led to this situation. Uh, most important, the Greek economic policies have been, have been very poor, put it that way. The regulatory rule of law, budget tax, et cetera. And it's been documented by many observers. So just some example, the Heritage Foundation Index ranks Greece 130 in the world on a par with many sub-Saharan African countries. The World Bank's Doing Business Indicator ranks Greece 61, and in terms of enforcing contracts, 155th, or registering property, 116th. According to the Fraser Institutes of, of, of Economic Policy, Greece ranks 84. And according to the IMF, for Greece to achieve, and I quote, to achieve productivity growth that is similar to what has been achieved in other Euro area countries, implementation of structural, i.e. supply side reforms, is therefore critical. Of course, the United States, by comparison, scores higher on all these indices. And one has to be careful about drawing analogies and lessons. Nevertheless, I see a problem in the United States because it's been declining on these indicators as well. So take the Fraser Index, for example. The US ranked two in the year 2000. It now ranks 14. The Heritage Index, we ranked five in 2008, now 12. The World Bank's Index, doing business, three in 2008 now seven. I've noted these changes myself in my book, First Principles, and I actually found a connection, I think, between these measures of performance, which show some deterioration, and the slow economic growth that we've had uh, recently, the slow recovery. I think a second problem is Greece, is there's really just one central bank for the whole Eurozone. Uh, that meant, going into the crisis, that the interest rate set by the ECB was just too low for Greece. It, it, it caused uh, a risk-taking, uh, clearly a housing boom, and eventually a bust. While the United States obviously is not in a currency zone with other countries, I think there's a lesson here for the United States too, because I think in that same period, 2003, 2005, the Federal Reserve also set interest rates too low. These the events were not completely unrelated, and that interest rate being too low in the US was one of the causes of the excess risk-taking borrowing and the housing boom, which led to a bust. The third problem for the Greek economy is this unsustainable debt. And here I would point in particular to a decision in 2010 that the IMF made to start making more loans to Greece without first insisting the debt be sustainable. When the IMF did this, it broke its own, it broke its own lending rule, uh, and of course the US voted to go along. This decision has left um, it really bailed out the private sector for, for the most part and has left the public sector, the IMF, the Eurogroup, and the ECB holding the bag. Now, if we compare the U.S. and Greece, um, you have to be careful. I see the, the chart with the flags. Um, according to CBO's recent uh, estimates for the alternative fiscal scenario, they have, uh, Greek, they have U.S. debt going to 89% of GDP in 10 years and 139% of GDP in 20 years. For some reason, the CBO no longer uh, publishes debt-to-GDP ratios greater than 250%. 
So I did some of my own calculations and, and put a chart in, which is rather dramatic, I think, in my testimony. It really says it shows an explosion of the debt to GDP ratio. It looks much worse than the flag in your chart. Now, the, the Greek situation, by comparison, is, is volatile. It's changing rapidly as we speak. Uh, just at the end of last year, the IMF estimated the Greek debt-to-GDP ratio would be 105% in 22. Uh, in June, they estimated it was up to 142%. The most recent estimate a few weeks ago, 170%. So it's, it's basically their estimates of skyrocketing. And I think the reason is that, again, both the deteriorating situation economically in Greece and the failure to implement uh, reforms. Now, it seems to me the lessons here are very clear. Just have a few seconds left. For the US um, and for Greece, they're similar. Situation in Greece is not that growth is too low, it's that it's negative. The situation in Greece is not to avoid a crisis, it's to get out of a crisis. But nonetheless, it seems to me the policies are similar, and that is to get back to pro-growth policies in Greece, get those indices up, however you measure it. I think it will improve growth. Ultimately, that is what they have to do. Situations on the debt, you see there's obviously more debt forgiveness that has to come based on these IMF numbers. We're not in that situation yet, but I would say if we don't control, I'd say the growth of spending um, in the US, our debt is gonna explode as I have shown in that chart. And, and, and we will definitely be in a, a very difficult situation. I think a way to start with that is with the fiscal year 2016 budget resolution um, it lays out a path for spending, um, has to be implemented, but that path seems to me to be sensible. It, it, it would increase economic growth, I think, not only in the long run, as CBO estimates, estimates, but also in the short run as well. But that's only 10 years. Beyond that, more has to be done. Uh, maybe we need some kind of agreement that spending can't grow any faster than GDP. Certainly we need that for, for health care expenditures, but something like that is needed. But more generally, I think policies that are uh, reverse the situation where we have been recently on the fiscal side, on the regulatory side, uh, on the tax side, would be the kind of things the U.S. needs to do uh, to improve its well-being. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Taylor. Let, let me just clarify. So when you take a look at this, you're cautioning us, you know, be careful of this because it understates the problem? I mean, that, that's basically what you're saying. This, 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 you know, even though we're almost double Greece's debt per capita, this is understanding the problem because you're looking at the long-term fiscal projections. It's understanding in that sense, absolutely. There's also, um, currently, my, my debt-to-GDP numbers that I recited are, are different than this. That's because they're relative to GDP, not relative to a person. And GDP per capita, of course, is much higher in the U.S. than in Greece. So let me ask you, how are, how are we getting away with this you know, when, when we've got uh, you know, almost double the debt per capita? I mean, why, why aren't we seeing uh, rise in the streets? Well, partly, as I say, it's because our GDP per capita is quite a bit higher. So I think in terms of measuring our ability to service, pay back the debt, measuring relative to GDP is probably is, is more, rel more reasonable figure. to do. I think in addition, um, we have uh, had, if you look at the, at the details of the charts, there's kind of a, a relatively flat period that's projected for the next few years under the current assumptions. I think that uh, leads to people feel a little bit better about it. Maybe we'll address that problem later. Maybe if it's not you, it's your successors. People are thinking, I don't know. But I think that's part of the problem, why you're not seeing the uh, 
the harm. I would say, though, you do hear a lot of complaining about the economy. You do see problems in certain areas of our country. You do see income uh, per capita stagnating, for, certainly in certain places. I don't think it's unrelated to the uncertainty about how this debt is going to be resolved. Again, that explosion in my chart um, is, is as current law implies. So there has to be a change in the law. What is it going to be? People don't know. Are we going to get the spending under control? Is there going to be uh, a tax increase? Is there going to be a problem with respect to the debt limit? We don't know. And I think that's an element of policy uncertainty. It has to be a drag on the economy right now. I mean, one of the things we did, and we, we held a hearing in our Homeland Security Committee with uh, CBO Director Hall, and we've converted their long-term fiscal uh, scenarios, the alternate fiscal scenario, converted that to dollars, and that shows over the next 30 years, which I think is really our, our problem, the, the demographic bubble, the baby boom generation, all the promises made can't pay for them, showed a, a deficit projected over about $103 trillion right. uh, over the next 30 years, and talk, talk about unsustainable. Uh, talk to me a little bit about what is being measured in those indicators. Uh, Either one of you, the, the, the indicators that uh, you know, Dr. Taylor was talking about. I mean, it's, you know, I understand Greece is very high on the Heritage Foundation, but talk about what uh, that actually measures. The various indices, uh, they measure the rule of law, how independent the judiciary is. Uh, they measure how long it takes to start up a business. They measure the degree of, of regulation and its inter, interference with the economy. They do this in various ways. Sometimes it's judgmental. Uh, they may measure openness to trade. That's, that's a, a common one that's less judgmental. But even there, how do you measure openness to trade? The reason why I mention several is because they all tend to say the same thing. Because I think, you, to be sure, you have to be very careful on using indices like that. You mentioned my being at the Treasury, at that time we tried to use indices like this to help decide what our foreign aid should look like to the very poor countries. And, and there's, a, I think, a quite strong correlation between these indices and the, and the growth of the economies. Doesn't mean it's causation, but I, be, I believe a lot of it is. I mean, would you say in general, if you had to kind of typify a term, it measures economic freedom, uh, the ability of a free market system to, to operate effectively without being hampered by governmental inter, inter, interference? Yeah, I, I like the word economic freedom, and in fact, it's used in, in some of the indices. Uh, World Bank uses uh, doing business. It's the same kind of concept. How free are people to, to start a business? How difficult is it? How, how difficult is it to operate in the marketplace? But I think the concept of economic freedom is, is the way I, I talked about it to my students and, and try to explain it, because it is a, is a freedom there, which to me, I might uh, say a few minutes. To me, to me, economic freedom requires a strong rule of law. It requires a predictable government policy. It requires uh, an orientation to a market system. It requires uh, a focus on incentives and, and a limited role for government in the sense of government's role is based on what government should do, not what the private sector can't do, can do. It's basically a cost-benefit approach to government policy. Well, you could, you could argue government should provide that stability of, of a legal framework for, for businesses to have some certainty in terms of making investment and understanding what's going to happen to them. Uh, Dr. Khan, can, can you talk a little bit about, you know, based on those types of uh, measurements, can you compare and contrast, you know, what went wrong in Greece and, and the differences between Greece and America right now? 
I think there are very dramatic differences in the fundamental freedoms, which I would call freedoms, what I call operating conditions, and that speaks to corruption and rule of law. It also just simply speaks to government involvement that is pervasive in the economy. And it also helps to explain your chart in the sense of saying, why is it that some countries have such a lesser capacity to carry debt? Because a country that is, has a rigid economy, that has extensive government-induced endorse, distortions in it, is not flexible to, a, to adapt to shocks and to produce a capacity to repay. And I think what we've seen in many countries that have had deep crises, Argentina, one that John worked on, a number of years ago, Greece now, that the actual levels of debt measured this way aren't that high when you enter the crisis. That what really is is an economy that's not able to adjust, not able to operate anywhere near full employment where people can't recognize their potential, and so it's not able to generate the resources for the government, or at least the government can capture, in a way that allows it to credibly service its debt. And I think we're very much seeing this at play in Greece. We can compare it very much to the U.S. We can also compare it, by the way, to other countries in the periphery. I think what we've seen in, in Spain and Portugal, and particularly in Ireland, are countries that have, since the crisis hit, and, and some, by some measures were in equally bad shape, have done a much better job of becoming more competitive, developing new industries, opening those up for private sector involvement in ways that have made them much more attractive to markets now and much more resilient. So I do think it speaks to that issue. You know, we, we all hear the anecdotes of, you know, Greek citizens, Greek citizens being able to retire at a pretty early age and, you know, the general level of the welfare state. Can you make some kind of comparison to, you know, America or, or those other countries that, that have snapped back from their financial crises? Uh, among the industrial world, I think Greece does stand out for an extraordinarily large uh, pension deficit. Uh, it was 16% of GDP last year in terms of uh, the deficit of the pension system. Uh, that required, I think, over 10% direct transfer from the government. These are large numbers, and after four years of adjustment. I think, to be fair, uh, it's not so much the levels of the pensions are, are extraordinarily high, but it is, as you touched on, it's early retirement and exemptions and special deals that have been cut over time as part of the political process in a way that um, has political and economic implications. One is it creates this huge and unfinanceable deficit, but it also creates a political problem because if I'm a Latvian, you know, um, middle-class worker and I'm working very hard and working to 65 or now 67, and I'm being asked to finance the pension of someone who may be able to retire in their mid-40s, it seems inequitable and has certainly undermined the politics. So certainly getting at the early retirement system is going to be core for any sustainable solution in Greece. Thank you. Senator Sheen. Um, well, and that, as you point out, that speaks to the, the challenges in terms of trying to negotiate the recent bailout agreement. So what are the prospects that this latest round could be successful? And, you know, I, I, was, I have been impressed so far by the ability of uh, the prime minister to actually get the reforms that he negotiated passed through Parliament um, when a lot of people thought that was not possible. Um, but is that enough to set them on a course to growth again? Because clearly until they can, they can figure out how to begin to deal with economic growth, it's going to be hard to, to maintain a political situation that's viable and also to, to be willing to do some of the other things that they need to do. I think we're in the first inning 
of a very difficult process. Uh, I agree with you that, that Prime Minister Cyprus, while I was deeply critical of, of the policies of the government in terms of the confrontation they created with, the, with creditors and the way they managed it up to the referendum, uh, since that time, he has been extraordinarily uh, capable in terms of getting through the initial stages mm -hmm. of the agreement and the passage of two rounds of bills, some very tough measures that uh, not only has Greece not done in the past, but he had been deeply resistant to, uh, enabled a bridge loan of over 7 billion euros so they could pay off some of their debt, but also, more importantly, started this process of negotiating with Europe. There are huge differences, though. Uh, on this negotiation of this European program or ESM program. A part of it is that the Europeans and the IMF believe there's gonna have to be a lot more adjustment uh, to come to deal with this decline in activity and the wider deficit. And the, the Greeks are basically taking the view now, we've done what we're gonna do, give us the money. That's a very difficult uh, bridge to cross. They have a large payment due in August. Uh, they need to get this ESM agreement done by then so they can get another bridge loan to pay that. That will produce a first drawing from the Europeans. They will then have to do more measures and complete a review maybe in October, November. That will then allow a discussion of debt relief. And Cyprus has made it very clear, Prime Minister Cyprus has made it very clear, without debt relief, the political support for this collapses. So he's pressing to get that accelerated. But I don't think that happens to October, November. And the IMF has then said, we're not willing to go ahead unless there is adequate debt relief. We can decide whether that's a credible threat, but that creates this very difficult sequencing problem, which may be incompatible with the domestic politics, which I think are very much fraying even as we mm. speak. If there's an election call, a snap election call, right in the middle of all this, uh, it's very hard for me to predict. But there's so much to get done, and the sequencing has to work just right. Uh, I think the odds, Frank, honestly, are quite long. Well, since we're talking about the IMF, you pointed out that you think um, we need to pass IMF quota reform, um, which I certainly agree with, but maybe you could talk a little bit about why you think that would be helpful in this situation. I think it would be helpful in Ukraine as we're looking at how we can do more to help Ukraine, but if you would talk a little bit about that, and then Dr. Taylor, you might want to weigh in as well. I will, and I, and I also will maybe come back and give a shout out to a proposal John has on this score, which I think is, is very constructive. Uh, as I noted, I think we are now in this environment where we're facing these very difficult, large programs, which inherently have a political element, inherently involve geopolitical interests. And nothing illustrates that more than the Ukraine program of 2014 and 2015 where the fund clearly bent their rules to, to lend outside their normal limits. As John said, they, they have these sort of archaic lending limits based on what they call quotas, how much you've put into the fund. Uh, they're out of date, they've expanded, they've adjusted, they've been very flexible in some ways, in a number of ways, both creating this so-called exceptional access, uh, and then the, this systemic exception, which, exemption, which uh, was sort of putting the rules aside and saying we can put them aside to some extent if there are these broad systemic consequences. In 2010, I don't know any major policymaker that wanted a strict interpretation, in place then, who wanted a very strict interpretation of the rules for Greece because it was very hard to say the debt was sustainable. It's never, it wasn't zero one. It wasn't it was unsustainable or it's fully sustainable, but it was clearly a risky, a risky program. And the idea that you could say high probability it wasn't true. So they came up with this idea saying, when there's these broad systemic consequences, we're going to be able to be more flexible. I think Ukraine was another example where if you looked at the numbers, 
we should, the fund shouldn't have been lending, but they were at war. And there was an, an, a broad imperative to help this country deal with that and to, and to implement a program which on its face looked extremely promising and deserved a chance. These are the kind of choices we're increasingly gonna face. Now I do think that on the one hand you got, we need to be able to build a fund that has the right size quotas and has the flexibility to lend on sensible criteria. But on the other hand, it can't be unconstrained discretion. There has to be some rules that constrain the use of that. It really has to be in these extraordinary cases and it has to be by a process that's disciplined. But I still think that the IMF reform is critical here, not just in terms of getting the numbers right, but because it's a signal to China, to Brazil, these other countries, that we want them to be participants in this global, uh, don't, you know, infrastructure or architecture, don't go your own way with the AIB, come here and negotiate with us, let's build a framework that makes sense. And so I think it's very important from that perspective as well. Thank you, Dr. Taylor, you have a reform proposal that has merit? I have a, uh, an idea. Uh, it's related to the IMF's policies though. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd say around 2002, 2003, the IMF, uh, instituted something called Exceptional Access Framework. It was basically a way to limit lending uh, to cases where they shouldn't have been lending. It actually came out of the financial crisis of the 90s where, where they were all over the place. So it was a reform. I think it was a sensible reform. It basically said do not lend to a country with an unsustainable debt. Some nuances, but do not lend to a country with an unsustainable debt. It worked pretty well until 2010, and then Greece came. Greece by any measure, as, as Rob indicated, did not have a sustainable debt. They had this, the IMF had the framework. What did they do? They changed the framework. They added an exemption, an exception for this case. And I think it's a real problem. And in fact, it's such an illustration of the problem because once that decision was made to, for the public sector to be lending to Greece, it enabled the private sector to get out. So now all that debt, which was originally almost all private sector, is now almost all public sector. It's a classic bailout of the private sector. It's visible for everybody to see. And what has it done? It's, it's led to these very acrimonious government-to-government -government discussions where the debt of Greece is held by governments. And that's what we're hearing, and that's why it's so difficult politically, so unstable. So I think it would be very good if the IMF went back to the policy it had before. I think if it became part of a quota uh, bill, quota voting bill, it might make it more visible to people. That's an important thing for the United States. It would show some U.S. leadership, I believe, if we did that. Because it is, it is a problem. I, you asked about Greece very briefly. I think it's unfortunately a kicking the can down the road situation. The IMF is now saying they need much more debt relief than seems to be in the cards. And I think they're right. They're, they're looking at it as best they can. So uh, right now, it seems to me like it will be another discussion later, which will not be so comfortable, perhaps with a different government. And just one last thing, the changes in Greece in this agreement, I think are very small in terms of really making the difference. They really have to do really pro-growth reforms and there are some of that, but, but not enough. Thank you, my time is up. Thanks, Senator. Um, let's talk about the Grexit. Uh, you know, the, the transfer of this debt from the private to the public, even back then there was a haircut for the, I mean, the private sector did suffer pain, correct? Something like about a 50% write down? Yeah. And a little bit more in present value terms, but yes, it was, it was substantial, about 70% by some measures. 
so why, I just want to understand why, why did Europe do it? What, what would have been so terrible about letting Greece exit? And what would be so terrible about letting Greece exit now? Uh, together with, with potential contagion, political contagion, from a standpoint of well, all we really need to do if you're Spain or Portugal or, or another a country in a similar situation, well, we'll just, we'll just demand concessions and, and more debt, uh, you know, more loans from, from Europe. And can you discuss, I know it's kind of a broad range, but uh, I mean, both of you kind of handle that. Dr. Taylor? So if, if by exit you mean exit uh, the euro. The euros, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that'd be very difficult. Uh, it's the euro, uh, debate about whether they should have gone in or not, um, but re getting out is a, is a big deal. You as a new currency, how that's going to be implemented. Right now, a lot of the debt, uh, the remaining private sector debt, if you call it, is held by the Greek banks. And so it's a, it's a big deal to, uh, to just to, to get out. I mean, can you maybe that's where it's Can you describe, going. though, what, I mean, kind of what happens? Why it's such a big deal? Well, it'll have to introduce a new currency. It'll have to decide what the exchange rate should be from the euro to the new currency. A lot of debates, and that's hard to do, is in the reverse direction. Uh, Germany did that with East Germany. Um, it, it, I, I have some experience with this in putting a new currency into Iraq, actually. As I was the Treasury, it was one of, our, one of our jobs to replace the old Saddam dinar with, with a new dinar. Uh, it's, it's a big deal. So there's a lot of uh, things that can go wrong. I would say um, if it could be avoided, it's probably best to avoid it. And, and I think, the, so to me, the, the, that's not the only problem, if I would say, too. The, to me, the problems, I mentioned that, that the problems really more are these economic policies that, that Greece has. I mean, they could be do, doing very well if they had better policies. That's what, where I would put my focus. Dr. Khan. Yeah, I, I suppose I... Uh, I would come at it a little bit differently in the following sense. Uh, yes, there are a set of policies that, if they were as strong as John would like, would put Greece on a course back to growth within the Eurozone. But they are very strong, and I have, as I've suggested, some doubts whether the political economy of Greece can sustain those. If they cannot, for whatever reason, be put in place, then the only way you're, you know, you're going to deal with 25% unemployment, 50% youth unemployment, this is devastating socially within Greece and, and should not be a, a long-term uh, solution, would be to exit because then you have your own monetary policy, you, you have your own fiscal policy, and you have a currency that will adjust probably quite a bit to the point that new export industries expand. We, so we've seen this in places like... Well, and and tur like, tourists would start flocking to Greece. Tourists would come back in and really some... Deal. It, it, it would take a big move, but, and it would take a degree of political stability, but they would come back in, and new industries would spring up, you know, uh, intermediate good productions or trans-shipping things, some agriculture probably. There would, be thing, there would be new industries, as well as compression of the imports that go on now. So I actually think that there could, the case for Grexit is actually perhaps stronger from a geopolitical perspective than not. Now, it's almost always painful to do it and incredibly disruptive. I mean, the East Germany, West Germany in some ways was uh, an artificial experiment. It was negotiated and planned. Most of the time this happens out of failure and out of the chaos failure. So you see IOUs often get issued by a government as they're trying to, you know, at the precipice and deciding what to do. Uh, a breakdown of payment systems. So when that exit decision occurs, you can have a bank holiday. You can do an initial redenomination, but finding the right prices and getting deciding whether, you know, what stays in euros and what goes to, uh, to drachmas is really only a first step of a comprehensive restructuring and workout process. 
Now, you know, you asked the question at the start, why is it so hard? And I think this is part of the reason it is very scary, even if in the long run it's good. Part of it clearly is political. You know, Europe has moved quite well ahead in terms of political integration, but the economic integration has lagged. And in particular, the ability to do fiscal transfers of the sort we take for granted that allow that if there's a shock in Texas while well, California is booming, that, that, that money through the federal system can move, and that is a huge buffer to economic activity. They don't have that. They've been resistant to doing it. The Germans in particular have been resistant to what they would see as enabling moral hazard of encouraging bad behavior and the lack of trust between these countries is contributing to that, that feeling. So I do think that in some sense this unwillingness to acknowledge either that a country can leave uh, or that we have to deal with the debt and these kind of issues in this context in a sense is constraining smart thinking on this issue and limiting them to sort of what the rules allow. And there's been value to having those rules, but I think now we're in a place where they may be counterproductive. But again, I, th I think you'd acknowledge the probability of this working out, like hey, this is the last bailout and they're going to get out the policies right, is quite small, correct? So, so the next step will be another bailout for the future, and they will never address the root cause of the problem, which is these awful economic indicators, lack of economic freedom, high and, and as a result, high unemployment, awful uh, business creation, that type of thing. I mean, so, I mean, so game it out. Yeah, I think, I think if the change in the currency obviously would have some of the effects you mentioned. It, it wouldn't last forever, obviously. Uh, I gave you statistics of 30 years of low growth uh, in Greece. It would be a, a temporary thing, a welcome. It may take pressure off the other actions. Uh, when uh, in Argentina's crisis uh, in 2001, they devalued, effectively got off. They, got off, they had effectively a peg and got off it, and it was a little bit of a boom, but it really, it was quite destructive in terms of contracts that were supposed to be owed in one currency versus another. And I think it probably, it probably made the situation worse for a while. Senator Sheen. Um, so I, I, I totally agree that it would be very disruptive. I, I was with um, some senators in 2012, meeting with Greece, then the Greek prime minister and other um, ministers talking about their efforts to address um, their challenges at that time. And one of the things that really stood out to me is we met with a group of business people who were the Greek heads of American companies in Greece. And we ran around the table and asked all of them individually to say what what they thought was the best outcome. Was it staying in the Eurozone or was it leaving? And to a person, they all said, we have got to stay, this is our future. But looking at where we are now, is it, and given the fact that all of the countries in the EU are not in the Eurozone, is there the potential to have a managed exit from the Eurozone for Greece in a way that would help minimize some of that disruption? Because we're looking now at um, going into, what, seven years of um, a financial crisis that has really um, gotten harder and harder for the Greek people to manage. And so is there the possibility for um, some other action to be taken that um, could help stabilize the situation and yet give them some relief in some way? 
theoretically, I think a managed exit is certainly possible, but I see it as very difficult given the way Europe is now operating. Interestingly, uh, German finance minister Schäuble, in the late day hours of that all-night meeting that produced the agreement and the run-up to it, uh, raised this idea of a plan B, of a temporary timeout in the Eurozone. And it had an element of what you're touching on, this sort of idea that you would go into a holding area, you would receive humanitarian assistance, potentially it might be easier to, to negotiate debt relief, be less arduous in terms of mm -hmm. policies. Uh, it would be this kind of, as I say, like a standstill in some sense from a legal perspective. Uh, and I actually think it, the, the idea uh, speaks to what you're talking about. And I actually thought there may be some merit to it. Now, unfortunately, or fortunately, that proposal was put on the table in a way that was perceived by everybody inside and outside the room as rather a threat to Greece. We've got a plan B. Right. You know, you can go into the penalty box if you're not willing to accept our terms. And so it became very much involved, you know, part of the politics of that, in a sense, has been ruled out. I, I think it'd be very hard to get back to something like that, given it's become, particularly in the, in the Greek debate, so, uh, so very poisonous. The one other footnote I would just add on, on your point, if you do a surveys, as you said, I think to this day you would still find very strong support in Greece for staying in the Eurozone. And in that sense, I feel uh, Prime Minister Cyprus has done a disservice. When he came to power, he said, I'm going to get you debt relief, I'm going to end austerity, get you lots more money, all within the Eurozone. That was never a combination that was on offer. But so... Ending austerity has never, people have never faced that tension between doing the policies John wants and the tough element of that with staying in the Eurozone, that that's the price of staying in. And I think that's never really been confronted. And so I worry that those polls are fragile. Uh, one case I might note, and I think it was December, as late as December 2001 in Argentina, there were polls showed very strong support for the currency board. Uh, even though it had been very austere and, and a lot of criticism from it. What happened was, you know, the government was forced to put banking controls on and the Coralito and then support evaporated very quickly. I think that if it's the breach of promise that's been made, that's, ha that's happened and will probably continue to happen, I think could destabilize that consensus or at least challenge it. Okay, you can't have both. Now you really have to decide. And that could change very quickly. Although I agree with you, at this point, it is a force keeping things going in the right direction. Well, I mean, the other, the other question is, you talked about, um, you both talked about the economic situation and consequences of where we are, but as you point out, there are also political consequences, and, um, and it seems to me that the Eurozone, um, as you pointed out, has to make a decision about how they're going to deal with um, Southern Europe and some of the economic challenges that they're facing in a way that provides um, more um, unanimity across the EU for how they're moving forward. And, and there are some other potential threats, I think, to, to failure to act, um, one of which is Russia. If, um, you know, there are frequent reports about um, Russia's efforts, not just in Eastern Europe, but also a suggestion that in Greece it's a place where they have looked to try and um, destabilize the situation and move the Greeks away from the West and more towards Russia. Um, Prime Minister Cyprus met with Putin and um, I assume was offered some assistance. So can, 
either of you talk to some of those challenges and, and why this is critical um, to us here in the United States that they work out the challenges around Greece? So I think it's a longer term issue and it is hard to make the judgments, but even creating the euro in the first place, the arguments were, you know, we will avoid war, even that, to that extent. And uh, what I think the problem was, yes, that's a good political argument, but economists would, at the same time, in the same meetings, would say, yes, but you're gonna, this is gonna cause some economic problems. You're gonna have to have only one interest rate for all these countries. You're not gonna be able to let the exchange rate adjust if wages move more quickly in one country than another. And one of the things that uh, should have been said is that in this situation, you gotta really watch your debt. You know, in fact, they did put these the so-called Maastricht rules right. in place. Um, but they broke them, and that's where this, the debt started to rise. But if they, I think in many respects, reminds me of this, the debt backdrop to this meeting. If they had actually adhered to those Maastricht Treaty rules, we would have avoided an awful lot of this. So sometimes the economic things that go along with these political sides get discarded. And I think that's to some extent what you're seeing now. There is a disconnect between those who say they want to keep the Greece in the euro with that exchange rate and the things that have to go along with that. Uh, the, the economic policies that go along with it. What the, the fact that the Greek banks are holding uh, Greek debt. All those things are just not part of the discussion. So it's a little wishful thinking. And, and the Argentina polls um, wanted to keep their fixed exchange rate at the time, peg or uh, uh, currency peg. Um, but the, um, and they didn't vote against it. They just, it just lost it. It was like an instantaneous thing because there was no choice. They had to get out of it. I think there's two important elements to your question. One is this bro a, a Europe that is not cohesive, that is at odds with each other. You know, I mean, we, we worry about French-German alliance now. We worry about the ability to, to obey their rules, to make sensible rules. A Europe that is divided and frozen is going not to be is going to be a difficult partner for us on a whole range of global international issues. I think Russia is perhaps. Uh, one of the most important ones, as you pointed out, with the, the effort to Greece was an effort to divide. When Cyprus had their crisis, we had a similar dynamic. Uh, I'm skeptical whether much money is ever going to come to these countries, but the point is that we, we, the United States, does value, very importantly, a Europe that can also lead and can act responsibly on a range of issues. Trade, global trade and dealing with China is another one that I think where that partnership is very important. So I think there's that broad issue that we want a united Europe uh, that, that can grow and be prosperous and to be successful. Uh, there's also country-specific elements that are pretty interesting. Now, the, a lot of attention has been put on the, elsewhere in the periphery. So, for example, Spain was actually quite tough on the Greeks in the negotiations, partly because they have an opposition right. party, not unlike Syriza, called Podemos, that until recently was rising very sh sharply in the polls. And I think there was a great deal of concern by the Spanish leadership that if Greece got too easy a deal, that indeed it would empower those in their country that said, we don't have to do all this hard stuff. And I think that was very much an important dynamic. I, if Greece has a crisis, if they do exit, it'll be very interesting and important to watch. What does that do? Does it feed that, the opposition or is there a sense, whoa, as we saw in Brazil, I think, in 2003, 2004, after the Argentina crisis, I don't want what they're having. I'm hopeful that's the case. The other one is, is Brexit, is what happens in uh, in the United Kingdom, where there is a very active debate, not on the Eurozone entry, that's not on the table, but in fact whether they want to stay in the EU. 
some commenters, I think it's interesting, have suggested that uh, a, the Greek, a Greek exit could be a, very difficult for the government. Uh, if you had an exit, you'd have to have a treaty change to make the rule, to basically allow for exit, because right now the rules say you can't. Uh, so you need German, the Germans and the French would want a very clean, quick treaty change to accommodate the reality. Um, but if I were an opponent of, of British participation in you, this would be a Pandora's box I would want to open. And so it will have a very uncertain debate on that internal British debate, uh, you know, where people will be saying, can we trust the EU? Is it a reliable partner? Do we want to be part of this, this, this coalition? And of course that feeds into, as you, as you mentioned at the start, a whole other set of countries that are in the EU, value it importantly, particularly in Eastern Europe, but have no interest right now in being in the Eurozone. So I think it is a complex uh, environment right now. Well, thank you. My time is up, but let me just be clear. I, I agree with you. I think a, an EU that is unified, that is at peace, that is economically strong is very important for the United States. They are our best ally, and um, I want to do everything I can to support them. Um, so I don't want to miscarry didn't want to mischaracterize what I was, um, the issues that I was raising there. So, thank you. So you touched a little bit on the moral hazard aspects. I guess you're, you could, you're saying it could go either way. You know, I, th I think, that, as you rightly stated, I think the concern is it's gonna go the one way where people say, well, that worked pretty good for them. No, no sense uh, moving toward economic freedom or, or uh, cutting back on pensions. We'll, we'll just demand a bailout. Uh, I, I think that's more likely. Uh, Dr. Taylor, what, what's your assessment of that? Of the moral hazard for the debt, uh, further debt reduction? Yeah, and, and how that'll affect other governments, other, other uh, you know, basically electors. Yeah, there's a, a kind of a political contagion that is certainly you have to worry about and is there. I mean, a lot of people didn't expect the left-wing government to become into Greece, and it's there, and it's, I think it's stabilized uh, to some extent with the other countries, but it's still, it's still a risk. I think that the, the difference here, though, with the usual kind of moral hazard with respect to debt is that debt's held by the public sector. You know, we usually think that if it's, if it's debt, you know, a bailout, then that's going to take away the incentives people have to be careful about who you're lending to or take away the incentives for a government to watch its budget. Uh, it's now another government that's holding it, and so it changes the dynamic completely. It, it's, it's worrisome to me politically because it, it, it creates an enormous amount of intergovernmental tension with different, uh, and, and personalities can become a big part of it, as, as we've seen in this case. So it's not so much a moral hazard now, it's, maybe it's just a plain old government hazard that's been caused. So let's kind of go back to lessons learned, first by kind of going back to the history of Greece. They entered the Eurozone January 1st, 2001. Now, I think there are reports that they weren't exactly forthright in exactly what their financial situation was, but they weren't anywhere near this, this, in this deep trouble, correct, in 2001? So I, I just kind of want to, you know, the first bailout was in uh, 2010, so it took 10 years. But again, this is only 15 years in the making here. Do you have anybody have any, yeah. willing to just kind of go through the history yeah. from 2001 and kind of quick walk us through exactly what happened? Again, the whole purpose of that is yeah. then to kind of relate to what we're looking at. I, I mentioned a 30-year uh, window, uh, kind of the definition of our problem, that, that uh, baby boom uh, demographic bubble. Uh, Unfortunately, I got white hair 15 years, 30 years goes by pretty fast. So who's best to speak to just kind of walk us through the history of, of the uh, Greek crisis? I can start, and I'm sure John will 
will correct me on in a couple of places. Um, so as you point out, with, with the start of the euro in 2001, Greek entry was initially fudged. Uh, there was flexibility had to already be applied, but uh, to basically say they met the criteria, but it was subsequently learned that they had misrepresented their, their fiscal data uh, in order to get in. Uh, but, but their debt wasn't at 300 Their debt was at quite more moderate levels, uh, and so it was seen as sustainable. Now, the interesting point to, the point to emphasize here is that from 2001 to about 2007, there's a great deal of market enthusiasm, right, uh, about the Eurozone, this sort of belief. Everyone who's in is never going to have any trouble. They're all going to change their policies and, every, and become Germany. Right, there was going to be this great pull to the higher, you know, kind of a, a higher level associated with being in, and markets provided, and I have some charts in my presentation. Markets provided a great deal of finance at very low rates. There was also, I think, globally, there was a certain uh, reach for yield, if you will, that I think exacerbated it. And so, in some sense, Greece could sustain weak policies, weaker than the rest of the eurozone, and there was little pressure, even though there were these rules, little to pressure them because they had effective market access. Of course, that all changes in the run-up to the, the global financial crisis. And so then you had this period of time where they basically were trying to delay an inevitable need for a program, and that comes, uh, that the crisis really hits then in 2009, but we, people had seen it coming really, uh, I think, for some time before that. So they're, they're in such, such deep trouble that the, the deep recession 2009, that was the, you know, basically catalyst for the ongoing crisis then. Well, I think they had, uh, in the interim, some other problems. I mentioned the interest rates set by this time by the European Central Bank, which may have not been too low for Germany, uh, but most indices are they were too low, for, at least for Greece, actually Greece, Ireland, and Portugal, and you look at the data. And so that, that's, it's, the too low interest rate, the too low for too long business, it is a problem. It does cause search for yield. It does create excess borrowing. And, eventually, and it was quite a housing uh, boom. Uh, in Greece, and so all that comes to, comes to an end with a thud. So I think during this period, you saw some imbalances, which, in terms of your your questions about lessons for the U.S., I think that is a lesson. That was that was not the greatest monetary policy, at least for Greece, at the time, and and it's it's part of the overall policy picture. It was one of the reasons why they had have this had this debt problem to, to today. Talk a little bit more about the what I'd consider just the possibility or almost certainty of the misallocation of capital when you have unrealistically low interest rates, you know, how you do chase yield, how, how you end up putting money into uh, high-risk high assets, create the types of bubbles that we saw burst in the housing crisis. Can you just you know, speak a little bit more to that? Because we're still there, correct? Yeah, um, there's, a, there's definitely a risk. We never, you, know, you never know where these imbalances uh, will show up. A lot of people didn't predict it was going to be such a problem with respect to housing. And, and now we look in retrospect and we see it not only in the U.S., but in, in some other countries. But what happens is if you're, you know, you're a manager of an investment portfolio and you're getting these very low yields, you're going to look for something else. Or if you're an elderly person trying to, to, to survive on fixed income, you, these very low interest rates are going to make you or lead you to take some risks with a higher interest rate. So it's very common. And I think in housing, it's particularly an issue. We, we, we have these adjustable rate mortgages, and so the very low interest rates that were said at that time made it very easy for people to, to borrow. So it, it's, that's the kind of thing that happens. It's also, in a sense, the market is not allocating capital as much because the, the central bank is actually keeping the interest rate at a floor. 
And those are, cause additional distortions, some of which we don't know about. Some people blame the liquidity problems on that. I don't think it's so obvious. But a lot of these distortions take place because of this very unusual type of policy that's taken place. Well, the mandatory spending programs, the, you know, the, the pensions in Europe, we, we call them entitlements here, I guess. Uh, Mr. Kahn, or Dr. Kahn, you said that was 16% of Greece's GDP. I know in the CBO's ultimate fiscal scenario, the average over 30 years is going to be about 14% of, of Social Security and our, our health care entitlements. Uh, so so we're, you know, we're not there yet. I think, I think currently we're around 8%. Don't quote me on that, but I think that's off the top of my head. So th those burdens are going to be Greece-like in, in not, that, not too many years. So again, I, I just want to walk that thing forward. With, with Greece, have they always been at 16% since 2001? Did that increase dramatically over that time period? Or? I think it has increased uh, a little bit recently. There were actually some cuts at an earlier moment. But I think, and it's a dynamic that is somewhat similar to the one we've struggled with, although I think on steroids, which is that uh, the fiscal consolidation of the last five years. And, and we should emphasize, there has been an extraordinary fiscal consolidation in Greece. They haven't done all the other structural things we think are so critical for growth, but they have been willing to cut the deficit from, I think the primary deficit was 10% of GDP when the crisis hit, and it was in a primary surplus last year. So probably 13, 14% of measures over that period. Uh, but what that means is discretionary spending and investment in particular has been cut you know, to, to the bone. And, and there's no discretion for what we think are some high priority investment projects because essentially it's all being, you know, that you can't touch for the most part the entitlements. So in some sense, the desire of the IMF in particular to reform the entitlements is not just about putting overall fiscal policy uh, on the right track, but also creating space for, for high priority needs. That are I, I always re relate kind of national debt loads to family debt, where if you're in debt over your head, how are you going to grow your personal economy? I mean, and any, any income above what's needed for just the basics is going to service the debt. Is that, is that a reasonable analogy, Dr. Taylor? No, I think it's, it's reasonable. You have to, ser to service the debt, you have to have a certain amount of income. And in the U.S., to service our debt, it's got to be tax-generated, or the debt's going to just grow and grow and grow. It comes you know, ultimately from taxes. So I think that's the problem with unsustainability. We have, if you look at the CBO's numbers, they have rising primary deficits as, you know, excluding interest payments. And uh, if that occurs, this debt is going to explode. I think that the, the to me, the numbers uh, that are most striking are the entitlement spending numbers as a share of GDP. They, they just take off. That can't uh, uh, be sustainable. That's really, it, it, really the problem. Discretionary spending, if anything, is flat mm -hmm. in their projections as a share of GDP. Maybe even certainly def defense is coming down. They decline, yeah. yeah. So the, you know, the problem is clearly entitlements. And, and I think there, there's a reasonable chance to, to, to get your handle about it. To me, keep the growth of entitlements roughly equal to GDP. For certain things like Social Security, that's not as hard as it looks. For health, it's, it's harder. But I think if there could be a, an, a, you know, like a bipartisan agreement, we've got to keep the growth of entitlements roughly in line with, with uh, GDP, and then we'll debate about how to do it. Should it be premium support? Should it be other kind of methods? And I think we're, we, could, we could tackle the problem. But it is a se very serious problem, this entitlement growth, whatever the word you want to use in the U.S. Senator Sheen. 
Um, I want to go back to Greece and to whether there are lessons for the European Union in what's happened there. And to avoid another Greece, should the European Union um, embrace a different approach to its fiscal and monetary policy? I mean, is that ultimately what we sh they should be thinking about? I would, I believe they should. They should accelerate the economic integration of the Eurozone. That would mean fiscal union in particular, so that there is some greater automaticity at the federal level uh, in the case of shocks, and it can be done in a less politically disruptive way. I think accelerating banking unification, some steps have been made, but more could be done, so that you really had a true backstop for the banks in a way that meant that you don't have you know, a run on, on, on Greek banks, even if the Greek government has some problems. So I think that that would be done. I have to be honest, the German government would draw exactly the uh, opposite conclusion. They would make the judgment that uh, this shows bad behavior cannot be rewarded, that the moral hazard concerns are significant, and we need to have even a more, that greater integration is fine, but it would have to be on a very strict rules-based basis. And, and where debt relief, which I also think is critically important here, some sort of process for debt relief, would only come really at the end of the process and after all the other reforms are done. I just don't think that's politically very viable. I Dr. Think, Taylor? Uh, excuse me, but in a way, the European uh, policy is, is itself a problem. It's, uh, I would use the word economic freedom isn't as stressed as much uh, with respect to uh, the unemployment problem is, is all over the place in, to me in Europe. I, we would never accept unemployment rates like they see in most of the area. And so to me, that's, those are structural problems that have to be addressed. Some of it has to do with taxes, some of it has to do with labor market reforms. I think if we could stress that more in our engagement with Europe, it would help a lot. It's part of, you know, we, we talk about international uh, uh, discussions and talks, the G20, G7, G, whatever it is, I think if more of those, or here, here's what we're doing to, to, for our structural reforms, here's what we're doing to raise our growth rate. The, the G20 tried to do that a couple of years ago through the, the uh, interventions of the Australians. I don't think we see enough of that. I don't hear enough about it. Uh, I know the t times I had an opportunity to do that, I tried to drive it in that direction. But it, in a way, there's too much focus on these shorter term things. Not that they're not important, mm -hmm. but the real problem you know, if we want, we want to be friendly to Europe, it seems to me we want to encourage them to, to be a, a good growth economy, not the mediocre growth economy they are. Just one, though, point in maybe defense of, uh, of the Treasury Department on this. I think if you look, for example, when the, when the European crisis first breaks in 2009, 2010, we had really just come out of, started to come out of our crisis right. in the back of very aggressive policy action. Uh, and, you know, we felt we knew something about how you should address these issues, and we had an experience that was worth conveying. And so I think, you know, if you looked at the president's involvement in 2010 in the first Greek program and the like, for better or for worse, we had strong leverage in those discussions. Honestly, it was, it's natural that as time has gone on, our direct ability of leverage over these conversations is going to diminish. Uh, the G20 maybe isn't as effective now as it was at the heat of the crisis. The Europeans have been through so many rounds, I think they feel they know what they're dealing with, and thank you very much for your lectures. I was, I was uh, hap hardened to see the administration get involved in this last round and encouraging maybe a you know, more constructive negotiation. 
But I think we also have to be honest. I mean, we have to think pretty carefully, how do we have leverage uh, in, in, in this environment? It's, it's, it's trickier than it once was, and maybe it does relate back to the geopolitical issues you raised earlier. Well, and we certainly took a different approach to the financial crisis than Europe did, because their approach was to um, go full speed ahead on austerity. Ours was to um, provide investment in a way to um, prime the pump of the economy, and so it obviously produced very different results. One of the things, Dr. Taylor, I would disagree with you on when you said we would never accept such high unemployment rates, I, I would say we have um, inner cities and communities where we do have those high unemployment rates. And we shouldn't I, accept them either. We should not accept them there. Um, and sadly, too often we have accepted them, and it's something that we should do, address. So uh, unfortunately, I have another hearing, but I want to thank you both very much for being here and for shedding light on what is a very challenging problem as we think about what's going to happen. And I certainly hope that the EU and um, the Eurozone and Greece will be successful in addressing this challenge. Thank you. Thank you for uh, attending. Appreciate it. I just have a couple more questions. Uh, and it really does relate to that uh, high unemployment rate. Uh, but I want to take it look slightly different uh, statistic. Percentage of population in the workforce, labor participation rate, both, both of these uh, measurements right now in America, I don't have them right off the top of my head, but they're, they're at some pretty low levels compared to even 10 years ago or 15 years ago. Dr. Taylor, can you, can you explain that? There's been a lot of uh, research and actually debate amongst economists uh, as usual on this. I feel that a good fraction of the decline in the labor force participation rate uh, is due to the weak recovery itself. It's basically jobs are not growing uh, much more rapidly than the population. In fact, the employment to population ratio has hardly budged since the since the, the bottom of the recession. It's just now increased slightly. So yes, we're, we're creating jobs, but hardly more, hardly enough to employ the growing population. So I, I point to that. If you look, it's, it's, it's certainly more than demographic because the labor force participation rate of young people uh, is down. I think it's an important issue to take up if you want to raise economic growth. You want to raise economic growth, part of that is going to come by employing more of the labor force to get the labor force participation rate up close to where it was uh, before this, this precipitous drop. And I think that, to me, that should be a focus of policy. To me, the, to, you want to have stronger growth, you need to have more jobs, you need to have more productivity. So each worker producing more, those two things. And both have to be addressed. I think the and you're asking more about the jobs part, the, the drop in uh, labor force participation, employment to population ratio. And I think that's, in a way, that's an opportunity. We could get, we could get more jobs uh, with a better performing economy. But the other part is productivity. Well, is an economy combination of, of labor and capital, financial capital? I mean, that's, that's, you know, so if you don't have as many people employed, you're going to have a, a smaller economy. Right. Talk a little bit about uh, your evaluation of a reduction of median household income, and you know what, what, what's what's the ex explanation behind that? I mean, we're we're you know literally five six years into into a recovery, and median household incomes actually declined. Well, I think it's the same story, and the numbers are are uh, harder to measure. But if you're going to have a a low growth lower growth economy, say two two point two percent, and you're going to have uh, 
that's going to measure the growth of your income in real terms too, and so that's going to mean growth of income is less. The population is growing, uh, and, and the labor force is growing too, and and the uh, and the number of jobs is growing, just not growing fast enough. So, in some sense, that's that's the productivity side of it, the income per worker, or income even uh, per, per person, per capita. And productivity, and maybe this is the best way to answer your question, productivity in the last four or five years is remarkably low for an expansion. It's like 0.5, 0.6% per year. And so I think that's really the reason for these income numbers uh, that we're concerned about. And it's not clear when, when they started down or, or what, but I, I wouldn't want to debate too much the beginning, the timing, the political part of it, because it's there and we need to address it. Yeah, I'm not an economist, I'm a business guy, so I've, I've done a lot of strategic planning. So I've done things like SWOT analysis, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. A, a very simple SWOT analysis, I just kind of want your comment on this. I, I think America's primary strengths, no, number one, we're the world's largest market, which means we're the world's biggest customer. And coming from a manufacturing background, I'll tell you, manufacturers want to be close to customers. So from my standpoint, that is an enormous competitive advantage on the global scene. So we're the world's biggest, biggest market. We do have, you know, because of innovation, uh, fracking, hy hydraulic fracturing, horizontal drilling, we've got an energy boom, so we have you know, relatively cheap, abundant energy. So if you're gonna manufacture things, you need power. Cheap power is better than expensive power, so you know, from my standpoint, that's an, an advantage, and it d directs your, your policy as well, is let's keep the energy prices low. On, on the weakness side of the ledger, our, our regulatory environment is onerous. There are numerous studies paying that about $2 trillion per year. I know they're disputed, but it gives you some sort of sense. And I always add that only nine economies in the world are larger than $2 trillion. Our, our tax system is uncompetitive. We're going to be holding a hearing tomorrow in the permanent subcommittee on investigations on exactly you know, laying out how uncompetitive our, our corporate tax rate is versus the rest of the world. Uh, you have to benchmark these things. Our legal environment does not provide the certainty. You know, all the rules, all the precedents, you know, as, as a business person, you're very uncertain. So to me, that's kind of, in, in a nutshell, uh, strengths and weaknesses, which pretty well should direct government policy in terms of, well, let's not drive up the cost of power, let's try and reduce the regulatory burden, let's make our tax system more competitive, and, you know, let's bring some certainty to our legal and regulatory framework. Uh, do you have other strengths, other weaknesses? Can you just basically comment that? I'll start with you, Dr. Kahn. Just, I mean, I, I agree. Uh, Probably list a few more like like uh, tr trade and openness and but the question is getting it done right. That's the, how do we move this agenda forward? And I think that's what I worry about at this point because there's no question that's kind of the thing that needs to be done. But we have to understand it. So one of the reasons I throw it out there is you have to you have to simplify what it is we need to so people understand. It. Otherwise you get torn, you know drawn down into the in the very detailed policy debates. But Mr. Khan, do you have so you know, so trade you you have to keep open markets. Well, I very much believe that's critical. We need to be able to be the rule setter for a, a large, open global marketplace that is attractive to other countries to come and participate in. And I think that is a core element of our prosperity and entrepreneurship. Obviously, we talked about these doing business indicators, and I still think in terms of many of these characteristics, the U.S. is still an extraordinarily dynamic uh, and vital economy. Uh, I spend most of my time looking at countries that are in crisis, uh, so it's, it's, it may be a low, hurt, a low bar, 
but I think there's still a lot of a lot of great strains to the U.S. economy. Yeah, and and again, we, we like our, those indicators improving for America. I'll, I'll just give both of you a chance. If you have any kind of closing comment, if there's something on your mind you want to, or something you want to get off your chest, I'm happy to do that before I close out the hearing. Dr. Taylor, anything? So tell me more specifically. Mr. Well, I'm just saying, if you have any closing comments before I close out the hearing. Something we didn't address. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I, just more generally, it seems to me the, the underlying uh, set of ideas here that there are lessons to learn from other countries and Greece is very important. And we can look, from our, you can look at our history, what's worked and what hasn't worked. You can look at different countries. It's a way to convey the important uh, issues to, to people, to, to voters, to people in America. So I, I would say keep it up. Dr. Khan. Yeah, I would just... Uh, to Go back to my opening remarks just to emphasize there are a kind of series of almost subtle decisions that are going to be made by the international community in the coming weeks. It, uh, it will deal with debt for Greece, but as we've been talking about with precedent for others. It will deal with the financing and most importantly, who pays, who picks up that bill. And the IMF is in many ways caught in the middle of it. Uh, I think for the most part we should be supporting them, but I think the important emphasis for you given the committee's jurisdiction and our general interest in this strong, vibrant global economy is, is the U.S. should be involved in those decisions because ultimately, cumulatively, they could have a pretty material impact on how, how the global economy operates. Well, thank you. Ken, I want to thank both of you for coming here, giving your time and, and thoughtful testimony and, and questions or, or answers to our questions. This hearing is adjourned. <laughs>